In this week's show, we are returning to our topic. We're doing a series called The Alex Jones Factor. And the reason we're focusing on that individual is because we see a lot of disinformation coming from that camp of thinking, conspiracy theories, right-wing propaganda, and like their own version of history and facts. So I contacted our previous guest on the show, Dr. Eric Kurlander, to share his opinion on a particular meme that is going around. But there's other issues that I would like to discuss with him related to conspiratorial thinking and how that's related to his expertise. Dr. Kurlander is an expert on modern German, European, and world history. And he has a PhD on modern European history from Harvard University, an MA from modern European history, also from and a BA in history from Boyd Duin College. Last time we spoke about your book, Hitler's Monsters. And I was uh, going back through our interview and realizing a lot of things that you talked about in your book are coming to the surface. And, you know, with the alt-right and a lot of the white supremacist stuff happening right now, it just worries me that a lot of these things are becoming mainstream. And now uh, talk about fake news or disinformation. There's a lot of things that are being put out there and there's the critical thinking that, that we need to be able to break down these narratives uh, doesn't seem to happen in the media or in uh, the marketplace of ideas. So if you don't mind, Dr. Kurlander, we're going to try to break down some of those subjects. But let's start with our, our first topic, and that would be that meme regarding Hitler. And I'll read it for our audience, and then we can get your commentary on it. So one of my conservative uh, friends posted this, and I know where he's going with it because that's been the attack at um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders regarding their uh, support of democratic socialism. So this is the quote that is that is posted. It has a picture of Hitler and it says, quote, We are socialists. We are enemies of today's capitalistic economic system for the exploitation of the economic weak with its unfair salaries, with its unseemly evaluation of a human being according to wealth and property, instead of responsibility and performance, and we are determined to destroy the system under all conditions. End quote, it says, Adolf Hitler, May 1st, 1927. Have you ever heard of that quote and where it comes from? Well, so Hitler did make a number of quotes along those lines. Primarily, 1920 was still trying to get working class voters from the socialists and the communists. So the important thing, I mean, there's a number of things we could talk about. First of all, fascism, by definition, was trying to attract constituents from all the traditional camps. So it wanted to get left wing voters. It wanted to get people who voted liberal and it wanted to get people who voted conservative. If you look at Mussolini, he formed a coalition government with liberals he himself had been a socialist. He got most of his votes from people who used to vote conservative. So fascism was this kind of collective movement that was trying to radicalize the bourgeoisie and draw workers away from the left because as national socialists, they hated the left, which they saw as international, Jewish, pro-immigrant, anti-war. So that their idea it was a national socialism 
help poor people, but only if they were racially pure and worked hard for the country and were willing to die for the country, fight wars. So that was the idea behind fascism as Mussolini conceived it, and then Hitler kind of copied it, right? So we'll start there. But here's but what happened was the Nazis tried to get support from workers. They called themselves a National Socialist German Workers Party. But the working class, people who worked for a wage, were in trade unions, worked in a factory, were voting for two parties 80 or 90% of the time, the communists and the socialists. They, even at the Nazis' peak, 1932, they weren't getting more than 20% of the workers. So what happened after 1924-25 when Hitler went to jail is they went through a kind of metamorphosis. So they, their party program still had stuff in it that kind of sounded socialist, like we're going to break up the big banks and we're going to um, prevent interest capitalism, you know, basically Jews from, from charging lots of interest to people who needed loans and all this kind of stuff. But they realized the people who like voting for them and there are political scientific regression uh, charts showing the likelihood of different demographics voting for the Nazis. The least likely to vote for the Nazis were Catholics and workers. The most likely were middle class and lower middle class Protestants. So when they saw that in the mid to late 20s, they decided that's what they're going to go for. So you had a party that sounded very radical and had given speeches attacking capitalism. But by 1930 and 31, when they met at something called the Hartsburg Front with the German conservatives and a bunch of big business leaders and some liberal elites, I mean pro-capitalist liberals, by that point they had moved to the right on a lot of issues because their voters were, were pro-right, were pro-capitalist, um, anti-socialist, anti-communist. So. It's complicated. Fascism doesn't fit neatly into any box. But the voters who voted for the Nazis were middle-class Protestants. Does that make sense? Okay. So um, so when we're talking about socialism, can you um, give us a, a definition? Because the definition for fascism, um, you know, it, it comes up Wikipedia. I guess I can look up uh, Webster Dictionary, but... It says, uh, a form of radical right-wing authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regiment, uh, regimentation of society and of the economy, which came to prominence in the early 20th century Europe. Um, so, we, so in my research, you can have fascism even in democratic uh, countries. Uh, according to one article, it said that even Mexico uh, at one point was fascist or other democracies. So it doesn't. So fascism is not connected to socialism, or it well, can be. Abstract terms. Socialism is a is an approach to you know social and economic policy, right? It means the state is going to control as part the means of production to some extent and decide how to distribute resources. You could have socialism in a you could have a mixed economy that has social our military is socialist. The VA, you know, medical 
uh, insurance, socialist. Social Security is socialist. It's a, technically speaking, it's just an approach to economic distribution. Capitalism, in the in its purest form, free market capitalism means no state intervention, and you know freedom of movement, trade. Um, you know, you the lowest possible prices for anything. You know, whatever marginal utility, all these kinds of things. So the, the two are usually, you know, in some way mixed in all economies. All I'm saying is the fascists were not classical liberals, okay? So let's start with things that are easier to orient. Classical liberalism, you know, of Adam Smith, early 19th century says, you get rid of feudalism and all these weird regulations and all these bizarre interventions in the economy based on birth and whether you're a member of the clergy, nobility, and you just let people who work hard accumulate money and trade with other people in other countries who work hard the world's going to be a better place, right? That's classical liberalism, what the British called the night watchman state. Um, fascism is not that. Fascists have no problem intervening in the economy. They have no problem with a strong state or military or relatively high taxes. So they're not liberals, and they're not certainly not classical liberals. Uh, traditional conservatives not what we would call our modern conservatives in America, many of whom are actually classical liberals, they don't mind um, maintaining traditional institutions that might obstruct perfect freedom, but they don't like, they, they're, not, they're not fascist in the sense that they're not asking for a one-party state you know, that's radical with people running around in uniforms and forcing everyone to do what they want. Traditional conservatives say, well, you know, the church and a kind of – and a monarchy and a separation of powers and a traditional judiciary, all these things kind of protect the, the diversity and pluralism and values that we like. So you've got classical liberals. You've got traditional conservatives. And then the socialists come along and say, you know what? Capitalism's great. It makes a lot of stuff. It, it created global trade, it modernized everything, roads and banks and buildings and much better, much more productive agriculture. The problem is more and more of the profit that capitalism made is going to the hands of the few. So our goal as socialists is to redistribute that and in the most radical form, revolt against capitalism and get rid of capitalism and then everyone can just share the products of capitalism, Right. So those are kind of the three movements that by the end of the 19th century, people were kind of supporting classical liberalism, conservatism. We don't want to change stuff too much. We like traditional institutions and socialism. And what the fascists did is they kind of mixed different elements. In a way, they were conservative because they rejected liberalism and socialism of the of the modern international variety, you know. Like all peoples are equal, everyone trades, um, borders are open, whether it was socialist or liberal, they didn't like those ideas. But they didn't mind state intervention, right? And that way they're not classical liberals and they're not really traditional conservatives. And what you're seeing today, to bring it, I think this is why it's confusing for your friends, you have a lot of conservatives now who would tell you that they're 
what we would call classical liberals. They don't believe in big government. They believe in free trade, individual rights, civil rights, the Constitution. But the reality is many of these people are supporting Trump or, you know, uh, Bannon or Steve King. And these people are not classical liberals. and They're not traditional conservatives. They're much closer to alt-right or fascist, a one-party state. They're frustrated when the Constitution gets in their way. They don't like a separation of powers. They don't want free trade, NAFTA, TPP. And so what fascism is, is it's taking all these different elements and saying we just want a, a powerful state with a big military that kicks out foreigners and oppresses people who look and act different. And if that means slightly higher taxes here or control of the economy there in order to build the military or infrastructure, we'll do it. Is that helpful? Okay. So if we go back to the quote, um, according to one of the fact checkers, uh, that quote is actually from a pamphlet by Gregor Strasser the, in, yeah. in 1926. And he, he's, he does double speak as well because he'll say – socialist stuff on one hand and then later on he says that people are not equal and that there's people who are more equal or more blessed than others and that that helps society and the state but usually based on race so first of all gregor strasser was on the left side of the political spectrum in the nazi party okay him he and goebbels so that's the other interesting thing right Mussolini, Goebbels, Gregor Strasser had all been somewhat sympathetic to socialism. Even Hitler, when he was younger, there's some evidence, Thomas Weber wrote a book, right after World War I, Hitler was sympathetic to socialism. Um, what August Babel, the chairman of the German Socialist Party, called the socialism of fools, because you had a lot, starting the 1880s and 90s, you had a lot of poorer Germans and Austrians who blamed the Jews for capitalism and the banks and international trade, the Rothschilds. And so instead of attacking capitalism as a system that exploits everybody, they blamed it on Jewish capitalism. So these parties were formed called the anti-Semitic parties in the 1880s and 90s. And their answer to everything, you know, why the divorce rate was higher, why the press was you know, too liberal, why there was avant-garde art, why homosexuality was being tolerated, why there were abortions, why the banks charged high interest rates, why department stores, everything was the Jews' fault, okay? All you're seeing in the fascist movement, especially in Germany and Austria after World War I, is a radical form of that socialism of fools. They don't really like capitalism, but not because they reject private property, or capital per se, but because they see it as being mobilized and manipulated by Jews. The irony, of course, is they also reject socialism and communism as political movements because they see those as Jewish. So these fascists want to have it both ways. They want to attack as we would, as the same as the all right does in America now. They want to attack Washington and Wall Street and claim that they're, that both Washington and Wall Street are conspiring against you, the little person, the small business person who's going to get it. And then when you push them, you say, but wait, Washington is, is about taxes and government 
and welfare programs. And Wall Street's about low taxes, making lots of money and trade. They tell you, yeah, but they're really they're really conspiring against you. Now, in America today, they're less likely to say it's the Jews pulling all the strings and more likely to you know, blame it on Muslim conspiracies or what have you. But the, it's the same idea. So fascism is trying to split the difference. It's trying to say we're against big banks and, and big business exploiting you, but we also hate the left and socialists and trade unions and communists because they're not – they're not patriotic and racially pure, and they're really run by Jews also. So that's what's confusing. Well, um, we're, do, we're doing another show about libel uh, and slander against Jewish people in America still happening. And it's just outrageous. I was listening to this one individual, and he was saying that um, – Everything was Jewish. That communism is Jewish. That uh, the Catholic Church is is uh, the strings are being pulled by the Jews. Like everything you heard from the Nazis and from Nietzsche, Freemasons are Jewish. Mormons are Jewish. Jehovah's Witnesses are Jewish. Evangelical churches are Jewish. So it's like it becomes the the gremlin in the in the airplane that the yep. Jews are behind everything, um, and it's still being said today. What Jewish values were they associating with communism and liberalism at that time? And what are, are they, and I guess they're doing it now as well. Well, my uh, colleague of mine, Paul Hanabrink, just wrote a book called The Myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, um, which is, so it's, it's, it's two things in combination, right? It's, or really three. It starts with the, the idea, I mean, you don't have, a long tradition of anti-Semitism in Japan or Korea because they're not Christian countries, right? And, and Christianity for better or worse, while it's, it's an outgrowth of Judaism, there also was a break from Judaism. So anti-Semitism is very much a, a European and Western tradition in the sense that the Jews didn't obviously accept Jesus as their savior and in more traditional Catholic uh, liturgy were responsible for him getting killed also among Protestants that's changed now but you gotta I mean that's the the, the big elephant there was Christianity has elements that were inherently anti-semitic and then in the 19th century when Jews are emancipated they're initially associated with capitalism because Jews had already been involved with money lending and business when they were not given equal rights. And so logically many Jews went into banking and, and finance and became, you know, the Rothschilds, right? So, so there's this idea that Jews control the banks and capitalism. And then after Marx, who was Jewish and LaSalle in Germany, also Jewish, so a number of the leaders of the socialist party, many of whom themselves said anti-Semitic things because they didn't like capitalism. Marx himself, criticizes Jews for being too much into making money. But the irony is Jews are also prominent in the socialist movement. So this myth of Judeo-Bolshevism, by the end of the 19th century, and certainly after World War I, right-wing nationalists are convinced that the Jews are behind communism, the Soviet Union, and socialism. But they also were, grew up thinking they're behind capitalism. You follow that? So you can explain anything that's wrong in the world now, by blaming Jews. 
anything linked to socialism or communism, it's the Jews. Anything related to capitalism and big business, it's the Jews. Anything related to the disintegration of Christianity, right? Um, people not caring enough about Jesus, the Bible, also the Jews. So that's a pretty big reservoir by you know the early, the first third of the 20th century on which to draw if you're right wing. And the fact that some left-wing thinkers, some socialists also vilify the Jews insofar as they're capitalist, right, means that you've got a lot of people in Europe saying the Jews are at fault for almost everything. So I'm not surprised that there's been a resuscitation of this um, trope, this kind of paradigm. Definitely, as you see in my book, the Nazis could tie almost anything to Jews, right? Any conviction they had could be tied back to the Jews being behind it. But but is it this uh, scapegoating and whipping boy mentality, or is it part of that magical thinking we talked about last time? Because if you look up the definition of capitalism, the antonym of capitalism is communism. So Jews are on both sides of the conflict? Right. That's why it's conspiratorial or magical thinking. A guy named Adolf Leschnitzer already in the 50s or 60s, wrote a book, The Magical Basis of Anti-Semitism. It's, it's magical thinking. To think the Jews are behind the Vatican and the big banks and, you know, pornography. I mean, literally everything. This is a typical Freemasons, right? It's typical right-wing conspiratorial thinking, which is... Right. And it, and it works. I mean, the lower middle class Protestant voters who voted 60, 70, 80 percent for Nazis. If you look at that demographic in Europe today, the lower middle class Protestants in Britain or America or Catholics in France, because they don't have Protestants, they're the ones who like Le Pen's movement or in Hungary, Romania, Poland. It's lower middle class, white, primarily men, but also some women. Right, who feel squeezed between big business, department stores, banks, international trade, which they can't compete with and don't quite understand, and the left, the urban, you know, pro-socialist, pro-green, pro-cosmopolitan groups that just make them uncomfortable. And then when you throw in immigrants and ethnic diversity and gay and lesbian rights, Oh my God! It's I mean that kind of cocktail for them, living in small towns or rural areas. So it's the same, um, the same triggers for the same population that we saw in the interwar period. It just has slightly different form, slightly different rhetoric, but it's not classical liberalism. It's not and it's not traditional conservatism. That's what's really important. There is an element of anti-capitalism in the Trump movement, for example. These are people who want protection. They want protection from China, protection from Mexican uh, labor, you know, coming in and taking their jobs. They want walls. They want infrastructure. They want the government to help them. Now, unlike the European right, our right isn't quite at the point where they're openly asking for a welfare state to take care of them. If you look at the French and the Dutch right, you know, as long as you're blonde and blue-eyed and a native French person, it's fine to have universal health care. 
They just don't want it for Muslims or Slavs, right? In America, our alt-right isn't quite that sophisticated. So they're asking for protection, but they're still kind of smiling and nodding when Trump or other Republicans talk about business and trade and low taxes, is it that's going to somehow fix their problems? They kind of know it won't, which is why they didn't vote for Jeb Bush or Rand Paul or all the other, you know, capitalist neoliberal elites that usually win the Republican nomination. They kind of get that that's not going to fix their problems in the same way that by the late 20s and early 30s, Lower middle class voters in Germany were rejecting the traditional conservative party and the two liberal parties and saying, we don't quite, they don't speak to us. Like we know we hate socialism and communism because that's evil and Jewish, but this business stuff and, and constitutions and free trade tariffs, that's all, that's all complicated. We're going to go with the Nazis because they, they seem like a real protest party that's nationally focused and is going to fix all our problems. And that's kind of what you're seeing happening in Europe and America today. Well, tell us they don't really free trade. Well, tell us about populism because what, what everybody's saying is there's a rise of populism across the world. So what is, where does that fit within the, the different movements? Well, populism exists on the left and the right. I mean, democracy is based in populism. I don't quite, the political scientists love to talk about populism as if, as if it's a coherent thing. Democracy by definition in the modern world since the French Revolution is populist. People who get elected, people who can get millions of votes tend to have popular appeal. They're, they're usually not, you know, um, uh, kind of, you know, out of touch elites. Occasionally, you'll get a George Bush senior who, you know, riding Reagan's coattails was able to squeak into office, but, well, not squeak in. I mean, he, he beat Dukakis badly, but Dukakis was hardly a populist. So, you know, usually populism is part, I mean, Clinton was a populist. Reagan was a populist. Carter, to a great degree, folksy Southerner, was a populist. So I, I don't quite get this populism thing other than it's usually a reaction against the most kind of cookie-cutter elite Washingtonian image of a politician. So Mitt Romney would have a hard time being a populist, right? But Obama had many populist elements. He appealed to regular people. He was charismatic. He gave impassioned speeches. He, could, he would speak in slang just like Clinton could speak in a southern folksy tone and play the sax. I so I, I'm not dismissing populism as a force. I'm simply saying that it's just as likely to get a great democratic Obama as it is to get a fascist elected or a Republican like Reagan. I'm not sure how it's unique to fascism, if that makes sense. Okay. You follow, you follow what I'm getting at? Yes. It's, it, it's more the ideology and the constituents that – Define fascism against its democratic competitors: liberalism, conservatism, and socialism. They get different constituents, or they're able to pull away the traditional constituents who vote for liberals and conservatives. They tend not to do as well with the working class. The urban working class, the kind of cosmopolitan, 
you know, young ethnic minorities, whatever you want to, who live in the cities, they tend not to be as attracted to the right wing populism we associate with fascism. They tend to do better with white, rural, and small town Protestants who but, come from what we would call a middle class or lower middle class background. But you can still have fascism within a democratic state or a socialist state, correct? Well, oh God. We've only had fascism. If fascism is a thing, and it's hard to define, let's say there's a continuum of kind of modern nationalist authoritarianism that we've seen in Franco and Salazar, Spain and Portugal. We saw it in Hungary with the Arrow Cross movement, Croatia with Ustasha, you know, Austria, Nazi Germany. If we, if whatever we want to call that, let's call that vaguely fascism or proto-fascism. Um, it's only come to power in modern industrialized states that have a democratic constitution. That, by definition, fascism's only come to power in those cases. Yeah, you know, you, we wouldn't call, you know, a a dictator coming to power in Uganda fascist because they're not they're not taking down a highly industrial, modernized liberal democracy with lots of different constituencies who are unable to resolve problems in parliament, right? Maybe because of an economic crisis. And then one party becomes a party of protest and takes over. That's usually we're talking about systems that already have a kind of weaker democratic tradition. Well, you know, if we're talking about Uganda or, or maybe Chile or, um, uh, Indonesia, and so you wouldn't necessarily call those fascist movements. Fascism usually connotes a vibrant modern liberal democracy with a diverse capitalist economy that through a variety of internal external crises like the Great Depression, World War, loses its ability to create a majority government, right? The parliamentary system breaks down, and so people get more and more frustrated Nothing's getting done. Unemployment's growing, or the or fighting between left and right in the streets, or ethnic minorities are being persecuted. And then this this right wing extreme party promises to protect everyone from the left, and that party gets more and more votes, and then eventually it kind of imposes its control over the liberal democratic institutions and erodes them if they haven't been eroded already, which they usually have. So if you look at when these fascists come to power, it's usually that the liberals who are in power, or in Weimar's case, the liberals, the Catholics, and the socialists, weren't able to stabilize things sufficiently or get enough votes to kind of protect liberal democratic institutions. They became vulnerable. Often conservative nationalists exploited those institutions or tried to change the constitution or, or rule by decree or executive order. And then eventually, by the time people were so desperate for any kind of authority and, and order, they went with fascism as a solution to the problem. Okay. So it, it, you don't have fascism in socialist states. Let's put it another way. So I'm from Mexico, and the the party that was in power for 90 years was the Revolutionary Party. The PRI? Right, and... And I always thought, well, there's a revolutionary party. They're supposed to be, you know, fighting for the people. But once they got in power, they became fascist in the sense of 
they control the the electorate, they control the media, and and whoever they chose would always win. And then some of their people moved to the other party, to the PAN, and then it, they just changed the name or whatever, and then the PAN started doing the same thing. So my fear is always, like, when you have a democracy, I went to Italy, and they had a communist party running, and it's like, how do you, how can you have a communist party? Wouldn't they, when they take, when they win, wouldn't they just take over? So let's start with Mexico. So Mexico did have a revolution, and they, they do have regular elections. But if you were going to use the political science criteria that define kind of whatever a, you know, a stable democracy, I'm not sure they would have ever rated Mexico up there with whatever the top 40 or 50 are. That is, you know, with, where you have regular elections where there are, you know, pretty consistent changes of power, you know, between multiple parties. As you say, whoever's in power, it's kind of quasi-democratic. There's, there's a certain level of authoritarianism and corruption that makes it very hard to take a, one party out of power, right? So I, I would argue that would mean that Mexico hasn't had a fascist government. It's had a kind of more traditional authoritarian system in a quasi-democratic state, a state that, you know, maybe like Poland the last few decades or so, it's close. I mean, it has elections and there are moments where it seems like civil society is vibrant and able to, you know, self-determine through elections. But at the end of the day, the party that controls the government seems to have a, a huge advantage in maintaining that. In America, which is never rated at the top, but usually I don't know what we are in the top 15 or 20 in terms of the various democratic institutional indices that you peaceful, right? You have mixed government quite often as we do right now. So it's in countries that have had that tradition that then lose it, that are most often the ones that go fascist. So if you look at Italy and Germany, they had had pretty much parliamentary systems going back to the mid-19th century, 1860s or 70s, that had more or less functioned. But then you get World War One and economic crisis, and they kind of break down. If you look at France, which is a pretty pretty strong, has pretty strong democratic and republican traditions going back to the French Revolution, and yet they've had multiple points in their history, Napoleon, Napoleon the third, which you could call proto-fascist, the Action Française in the thirties, which came very close with other right wing groups to taking power. The only reason they didn't is because the communists, and this gets to your question about Italy. The communists, the socialists, and the left liberals agreed to form a government called the Popular Front, which could barely eke out a majority, so the right wing didn't take over until when they lost the war, Vichy basically was proto-fascist. So, you know, it's very hard, another way of putting it is it's very hard in a modern industrial um, society with lots of competing interests to have peaceful uh, transfers of power to have the ability for different parties that represent different constituencies to consistently govern and make compromises and pass legislation. If you look at all of human history and if you look over the entire world, 
it's only really in the last 50 to 100 years and in relatively few countries where everyone can vote, women, men, ethnic minorities, and democracy is more or less stable, right? That's the exception to the rule. And we're going through a period right now, which is cyclical, where that democracy is being tested. Well, tell us, uh, what do you know about democratic socialist countries such as Canada, Germany, and Australia, and even the state of Israel? I know a lot of people say that state of Israel is, is the worst dictatorship in the world and it's uh, whatever supremacist and imperial. But like all um, all these places are socialist democracies that work pretty well. Why is are Americans so afraid of those terms? Well, I mean, it's hard to say why are they afraid of it. Look, first of all, I'd say there's the norm since World War II, certainly since World War II, starting in the 1890s, there were welfare states developing. Bismarck helped create one in Germany. You had the beginnings of one in Britain in the 20s and 30s, then America in the 30s. So the idea of social socialist elements being um, implemented, well, welfare, unemployment insurance, um, uh disability insurance, uh, public education, subsidized lunches, Medicare, Medicaid. These are fairly normal in modern industrial societies that are liberal, whether you want to call them liberal democratic or social democratic. I mean, Germany is governed by a Christian democratic um, coalition, mostly with some if social democrats were the grand coalition for a while, but they wouldn't call themselves socialists. They call themselves conservative or Christian democratic. My point being is there are, there's a pretty robust welfare state in most modern industrial societies, whether it's South Korea, Australia, Japan, as you brought up, Canada, Israel. America has a pretty strong welfare state itself. It's bad. It's poorly financed. Um, but we have Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, as you say, though, we're probably the least efficient and the most kind of ideologically opposed to it of any industrialized wealthy society. Um, and, and that's an interesting question. Why do Americans, including the Democratic Party, look at what happened with Obamacare, seem so allergic to just efficiently spending their tax money by directly creating these programs and not, like in the case of healthcare, bribing private insurers to do it for them and therefore paying you know hundreds of billions more. That's a great question. I would link it to a number of factors, but I'll take a pause for a moment. Did what I say so far make sense? That, so, that most modern industrial societies have welfare states. 